Dotnet Rocks episode 680 with guest Sebastian Lombla. Recorded live Monday, June 27th, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Hey, thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Richard, how are you? I am well, my friend, and you have gas. I'm very happy because I have gas. <laughs> let, me, let me explain. You know, we have a propane tank and... Uh, in our new house, my, my girl and I. Oh, yeah. What, what runs off propane? Well, uh, the dryer and two ranges and an oven. Oh, okay. Basically, our entire kitchen plus our clothes dryer. And uh, so we ran out of propane, and it's our fault because, you know, we moved in and we just thought, well, it's a propane tank. It's got propane in it. Let's use it. So, uh, you know, when it ran out, I don't want to name names, Amerigas. <laughs> <laughs> We called them, and they just didn't care. They just took a week for them to f- not send us anything in the mail that we had to sign. And long story short, three weeks later, we've got gas, and, and we've called and called and called and called, and uh, just such a pain in the ass. So we figured it out that when you hire a propane company yeah, and they own your tank, they are not motivated to help you in any way. Right. Because you're locked into a contract when you don't have gas. When they get around to it, they'll come fill it up. Meantime, screw you. Yeah. So, but what you can do is you can get your own propane tank. And I know this because I called a competitor and I said, hey, would you come fill my tank? And they said, well, is it your tank? And I said, well, I don't know. They said, does it have a brand on it like another company? Well, yeah. Then it's not your tank. There you go. But if you can show proof of ownership, you bought it or whatever, then we'll come and fill it up. So- if you have your own tank, you can shop for the best price, and you'll probably get better service, too. Because, Interesting. Because, you know, that's... That's a .NET Rocks tip right there. That's a little tip. So if you've got a 500-gallon propane tank that you want to sell me, send me an email, carlfranklins.net. Nice. All right. All right. Hey, better know framework. Hit me. All right, what do you got? All right, so today I really want to talk about something important. Okay. Which is something that probably a lot of people who don't do any JavaScript programming or haven't in a long time probably are thinking about and are a little confused. What the hell is JScript? Isn't it JavaScript? Well, JScript is a scripting language that's based on the ECMAScript standard right. that Microsoft Internet Explorer uses. And it's Microsoft's flavor of JavaScript, but it's an active scripting language. So it deals with com objects. It's like VBScript in the browser. You know what I'm saying? But it's not, it, while, while it's mostly compatible with JavaScript, it has extra things that JavaScript does not have. And so you really, JScript is not JavaScript is what I'm getting at. Now there's a language, JScript.net, which you can use on the server side. Right. Right. Also not JavaScript. So when you're talking about, you're hearing Microsoft talk about JavaScript and HTML5, we're talking pure JavaScript. We're not talking JScript. All right? Okay. So I I wanted to clear that up. And if you have any um, more questions, just Google JScript versus JavaScript. There's some really good stuff out there. Even the Wikipedia uh, entry is pretty good. 
But uh, and JavaScript is still supported in IE9. Yeah. Version 9.0. There you go. So, but it isn't, it isn't JavaScript. It's not the same. It's not pure JavaScript. It's Microsoft's flavor of JavaScript that was used for, for uh, scripting ActiveX controls and, and all of that stuff, as well as the JavaScript implementation in the browser. All right. Yeah. So who's talking to us, Richard? I grabbed a comment off of show 670. Uh, which was the mobile development panel discussion from DevTeach, if you recall, when we were in Montreal. And the comments from Jason Farrell, and he says, uh, uh, Richard Carl loved the show and loved this episode the most ever. Mobile development is something I am very big into, mostly Android, and we have recently started moving to Windows Phone 7. As a .NET dev, Windows Phone 7 makes programming a dream, and I have high hopes that Microsoft can push the platform to be a legitimate alternative to iPhone and Android. One thing I would like to mention is that while many Android devs start with Eclipse, many more seem to find their way to IntelliJ, which is free and from JetBrains. Ah, It, in my opinion, provides a much better development experience for those of us using Android. Again, awesome episode. Love the content. Keep it coming. Jason Farrell from Michigan. Jason, thanks so much for your message. Thanks, Great Jason. insight there about IntelliJ, and we'll ship a mug to you. I'll ping you in Twitter. Yeah. And if you've got questions, comments, concerns about a show, want to see something special, just want to tell us how much fun we're having, because we know, you can write it up on, on any show at the comments section on .netrocks.com or send us an email, .netrocks at franklins.net. And Richard, you know, uh, I'm very excited because while we were at NDC, we uh, saw and met with Sebastian Lambla, and uh, he is here today. Sebastian runs Caffeine IT a .NET consultancy and contracting company, helping the good people of London adopt new technologies, new processes, new methodologies, and in general, anything that's new and shiny. Specializing in cutting-edge tools, from REST architectures to occasionally connected rich clients, Sebastian has been developing with .NET since 2000 and has a secret love affair with JavaScript. In his spare time, he's working on OpenRasta, a resource-oriented web framework for .NET and OpenWrap, the first .NET-based package manager. Welcome, Sebastian. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Pleasure. Uh, I was taking a look at OpenRasta before we started the show. Um, this is essentially a, a REST framework, right? Uh, I'm, I'm not, uh, it's, it's complicated. <laughs> you start with the most complicated question. It's a resource-oriented framework. Okay. So it, it, it tries to take the idea of resources, uh, which are core of how the web is built and how we build uh, actual services and servers and web pages and web applications and put that as a first-class citizen in the framework. That means that you can do RESTful architectures based on open raster, but it also means that you can do a lot of things that are not RESTful based on open raster as well. So that's why I, I try to talk about more uh, of a resource-oriented framework rather than REST. I think okay. <clears throat> the label REST is a bit of a danger. It really is, yeah. And that's why I was sort of – because, you know, when you say that it's a REST framework, people say, well, REST works just fine. You know, without frameworks, why do we need open Rasta? So that's a good uh, question to start with. Why Why do we need open Rasta? Uh, it's, um, it's not that easy to build – good web, web architectures that use links and create things with links and forms and being able to process uh, the, the various 
things we can do in the whole spectrum of web applications, all the way from HTML web forms to JSON-based services. All these things are kind of easy to start with, and then you hit the boundary very quickly of what the existing tooling can provide. And that's where OpenRaster fits in. It provides you with uh, much more control over what happens with HTTP which you just don't have access to even with something like ASP.NET. Right. So it gives you that, that, that extra huge amount of features that are just not available. And it's based on these three concepts, resources, handlers, and codecs. Yeah, so, so it's, a, it's, it's a bit like MVC, mm-hmm. except we don't really have a model. We have resources, so we have things that have URIs, uh, internet addresses, internet identifiers, call it what you may. Mm-hmm. Uh, those... Uh, resources, those things that have addresses can be talked to by sending a request and receiving a response. So we've got handlers, which are the components that receives those requests and then back something that will be transferred as as an HTTP message. Mm -hmm. So that's a bit the equivalent of your control owner, typical last century MVC framework. Right. And then we have uh, Codex, which is basically responsible for reading and writing uh, media types, okay, the, right. the formats that goes on the wire, be it HTML, JSON, XML, whatever you want to throw out there. Sort of like a formatter or a serializer. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. it goes both ways. So one of the, one of the specificities in OpenRasters is that we try to keep objects doing one thing and one thing well. Um, yeah. So we have the concept of codecs that are very symmetric. And it's, used, it's called Codex because it reads and it writes. Mm. Whereas in, in a lot of frameworks, you will have systems that have a component for writing, uh, like a view engine, and then you will have another component for reading, and then that will be a value provider slash whatever. But yeah, it's, it's, clo- it's close to what the WCF guys call the formatter. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And uh, so separation of concerns... HTTP features, the codex support, what kind of codecs come in the box? So in the box, we try to uh, take the minimum amount of uh, dependencies possible on .NET. So it depends on which version of uh, .NET you run OpenRaster on. Mm-hmm. We go all the way back to .NET 2. Okay. So if you're on .NET 2, you will have some XML with the XML serializer, and we'll support things like uh, text. Uh, we'll support things like HTML forms, mm-hmm. multiparts, files or file streams, uh, that's .NET 2 level. If you go to 3 or 3.5, you'll get all the data contract uh, mm. codecs as well, which lets you use the, um, the Microsoft data contracts. And after that, it's really a pluggability, uh, pluggability solution. You just pull in a codec for something else, and then you'll have things like JS, JSON using JSON.net, mm-hmm. and you'll have things like uh, Razor, uh, SharpView, SparkView, Web forms, even traditional old web forms are still supported. So we've got a codec for each of those different technologies. If we counted the number of codecs, I don't know, we'll probably ship with about seven, eight out of the box, and then you can add more uh, by using a package manager and just pulling that code in. And it's all HTTP, right? I mean, there's no, there's no other protocols below that that you can tap into. No, 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 because, and there's a, there's a very good reason for that. Um, you can use HTTP in two ways. Uh, I'll be a bit cheeky. You can, you can use it as a transport or you can use it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
um, you can use it as a transport. And then that's what the soap guys did. <clears throat> uh, you basically try to create a channel that's completely abstracted from HTTP. You try to shoehorn things that don't quite fit into something that doesn't quite fit. You know, it's the... I learned personally very early on in life when I was in school that squares didn't quite fit into round circles. But some people don't quite get that point. So they spent many years building a whole soap stack on top of trying to channel things within HTTP, which is fine. They, they made it work, and that's, that's a recognition of how flexible HTTP is. Yeah. But HTTP is an application protocol. So when you model the semantics of your application or your architecture, you try to leverage as much as you can from an existing widely implemented and widely available application protocol. You try to not recreate something that is specific to your technology stack on top of it because you lose all the hard work that went into making HTTP, you know, the probably the highest traffic protocol on, on the internet. Right. Well, you know, if it transports porn, it's got to be big. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Good insight, this- Richard. Thanks for that. I'm, I'm, I'm giving you a nice segue. So I'm, I'm in that kind of mood today. I'm, I'm looking at the configuration how tos and, and I get this idea that this is one of these frameworks where it makes you sit back and think about what you're really trying to do here. Yeah. I think it's the, it's the whole idea of, um, some people, I mean, we, we used to call these kind of frameworks opinionated. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I like the term very much anymore. Uh, I think it's, Trying to trying to force you into doing the right thing, rather than tolerate that people without sufficient knowledge to be building architectures should be able to uh, get very quickly to something functional that will need a rewrite. So it's, right, and I'm and I'm not sure it's about quickly either. It's it's about if you do it right, it will be quick. If you do it wrong, it's going to be painful. So usually people end up with a mailing list, and then you explain to them why their approach is not quite matching what HTTP wants. And then once once you've reached that knowledge boundary, then things become very easy. And it's a boundary that exists for .NET developers. It exists for Rails developers. It exists for most people that use the web. So I get the sense that every opening conversation you have with a new user of OpenRASA says, this thing doesn't do what I need it to do. It's crap. Yeah. I, 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 we, we don't get we don't get that no no okay <laughs> we don't we don't we don't get that I think I think it's uh, it's much easier now than it was a couple of years ago we do get some messages every month of I try to map all the resources to the same thing mm. and then give it twenty five different addresses and then open Rust I can't figure out what it, what, it, what each of them is doing yeah <laughs> what's the matter with this thing. <laughs> <laughs> So it's, um, but, but we don't, we, the reality of it is I don't get uh, that much traffic from users in the sense that it kind of does what it, uh, it does what it says on the tin. And so people have been using it in anger for years. Mm. And the, the, the kind of, the kind of very newcomers to HTTP questions are, are starting to be on the increase because we've reached certain adoption Percentage. I'd love to have like some proper reports of how many people actually use it, but I think sure. that there's really been this year uh, a big increase in in kind of newbies. And you wrote your own IOC container for this? Uh, <laughs> yes, but that's that's uh, that's an implementation detail. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> not for general use. It's not supposed to be for general use. Right. Technically, it wasn't really even built for, to be for production use. Uh, 
we we have a we open Rust is a very special framework. It completely com, um, composes and combines itself based on your IOC container. But I think that requiring people to learn about how to use an IOC container and then finding an IOC container and configuring an IOC container is is a very very big burden on the out of box experience on right. on on these kinds of frameworks. And so what we did instead was to build a, a, a normalization layer that makes all the IOC containers work the same way, and both as a reference implementation and as something that lets you just be very quick in building your first application, we built a sort of what's called a dependency resolver, which is a, a, not exactly the correct name either, but can't change it now, sadly, um, that kind of provides some IOC container out of the box that provide the features that you can then replace with your own container. Yeah, okay. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik Just Decompile. Recent developments in the .NET world have opened up a niche for a free .NET decompiling tool. If you, like so many other developers, have been looking for an alternative .NET decompiler, you'll most certainly welcome the launch of Just Decompile, a powerful tool which promises to stay free forever. Currently in beta, Just Decompile offers effortless .NET decompiling and assembly browsing, innovative code analysis and navigation, side-by-side assembly loading, auto-updating, and better decompiling accuracy. A product by leading .NET vendor Telerik, Just Decompile has an aggressive release schedule and a roadmap based on community feedback. You can visit the Just Decompile feature suggestion forum to let Telerik know what features you'd like to see added to Just Decompile or vote for one suggested by your peers. The official version launch is expected this summer, 2011. Go to Telerik.com slash .NET decompiling. And remember to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. The the other thing that's really interesting to me on, on your list of advantages is that it can be hosted in ASP.NET in memory or right on HTTP sys without requiring ASP.NET. That's pretty that's interesting. Right. So are you implementing uh, HTTP handlers somehow? I mean, I'm trying to figure uh, out how well, you do that. Um, basically, the, um, it got to a point in a long time ago, many years ago, when building the uh, the first, the second beta of OpenRust, it came to a point where all the reliance on ESP.NET was starting to become unmanageable. There's a lot of stuff that we just needed to strip out huh. uh, to make OpenRust work uh, much better. Yeah. And so what we did is completely abstract OpenRust from, from the hosting environment, and we've had a uh, hosting environment abstraction for so probably two years now. And in case of HTTP.sys, we just implement that straight on top of uh, the HTTP listener classes, which gives us a uh, direct bridge to the HTTP.sys uh, driver. So we basically run exactly at the same level that um, IIS would. That's very cool. Yeah. Uh, and also you're very proud of the fact that there's no... You don't have any base classes that need to be inherited. You can just use your own classes and your own handlers, Poco objects. Yeah, I think I think it's a, it's it's a very um, it's a, it's a very different way of designing software. Most of the things that are guaranteed in OpenRust are the interface level; they're not at the base class levels. And the, the thing that infuriated me a lot in dealing with the old ASP.NET model, and, and to a certain extent, to what MVC turned into post. Preview four or five was the amount of base classes with a lot of internal members, a lot of hidden magic going in there, 
with a very, very complicated and hidden contract. And when you when you have to inherit from a base class that does stuff for you, this is using uh, inheritance as a way of composing, which is just not scaling very well. The the, the, right. the implicit contract that exists between the parents and the base class, it's the, uh, between the parents and the child class, is just a very complicated thing to follow. It makes the code not feel nice. And yeah. And we don't really need it anyway because the web is, is by definition, very dynamic. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of things that you just want to be able to do and move quickly. And the shape of objects gives us already all the metadata information we need. We don't need to clutter anything with plenty of interfaces where they're not needed mm. uh, or, or to, to, to simply to, uh, to feed the C-sharp compiler with more static, staticity. I don't know if that's Staticity? Uh, <laughs> I think he's making that one up. Uh, yeah, that's true. Staticity, I like it, but static with greater staticness. <laughs> staticness, yeah, that's that's the one. Staticness. But I think in general, you know, the, the, the more we, we we look at how quickly other platforms manage to respond to changes in 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 technology scapes and and provide fast implementation details, you'll see a lot of Languages are dynamic because those map very well to the nature of the web, which is very dynamic. Right. And I think um, trying to feed the feed the monster uh, or doing some tool turbation uh, just to provide a compiler with statistics checks for for an application protocol that's dynamic anyway is trying to mm. make things match as a, that just won't match. And we go back to the circle and square problems; it's just not fitting very well. Yeah. So give us some examples of success stories, some projects that have been developed with uh, Open Rasta that you're fairly proud of. Most of them are not built by me. <laughs> so yeah. uh, I can tell you a couple of companies that are, are doing really, really cool stuff on top of Open Rasta. Mm-hmm. Um, Huddle is a company that does um, um, a whole social uh, collaboration platform, and they build, they switch their the whole strategy to open Rasta many years ago. They were the first very big users, and they're providing all their all their new REST APIs on uh, new code that was written on Open Master. And they've they've had um, a very good time doing it. And it solved a lot of problems they had because they were they were on WCF REST before. Now who is who is this again? Hurdle. Huddle. Huddle. H U Huddle. H U D D L E. Yeah. Okay. That's right. I think their website is huddle.net. Okay. Uh, so they, they, they got uh, they, they got a nice success story there, and so they removed a lot of the complexity and a lot of uh, duplication that they had and provided them with all the HTTP features that were absolutely not doable on top of the WCF stack. Okay. So that, that solved for them not a big problem. And then we've got all the way to people like the NHS, which is uh, the National Health Service, I think. Uh, in the UK that has one of their services completely based on Open Master as well to aggregate content and medical information. Mm-hmm. So we've got really a wide range of companies going all the way from the startup to uh, full like the NHS, to people like Seven Digital that you may know that mm. do uh, online music. Yeah. Uh, there's really a, we really have a very, very nice wide range. Skyscanner, if you travel a lot, you may know this app. And website that lets you find uh, all these flight information to travel from one place to another. That's also built on Open Raster. Okay. So yeah, there, there, there is a, um, a reasonably large community, especially as the project has been going on for quite a few years now. We, we've built a certain following. 
I would say. Oh, that's great. And it's really about building services that can scale well. Is that what Huddle grabbed onto? Um, I think it's uh, uh, when, when you you know the the HTTP part of a story for RESTful architectures is not really the framework you're going to use. Right. Uh, the how you model your application to support things like scaling horizontally based on caching, not having state between your servers, not sharing too too much state that you don't need, right. not putting too much uh, connection state information in cookies, all these kind of architectural principles that the web enable by definition are available in Open Raster. But you can build uh, not scalable websites with Open Raster just like you can do it with any other framework. We don't sure. force you into... Um, we force you into nice designs that will help you scale, but it doesn't mean that you will automatically scale just because you're HTTP. And I don't think the majority of scaling issues are purely on your HTTP front end. It's very rare that's the case. And I, and I get the sense that you've got a, a style to the way OpenRasta works. That, and I'm, I think I'm borrowing uh, Scott Guthrie's line here. You're helping developers fall into the pit of success, mm-hmm. that they tend to do the right things when they use the, the uh, framework. Yeah, that, that's definitely the um, that's definitely what you know. Opinionated frameworks try to do in a way. It's to make sure that there, we we limit the number of choices. I'm a firm believer that opening too many options for developers is just asking for monstrosities to be created and monstru- monstrosity frameworks to maintain afterwards. You know, you will always have a hundred customers. Out of those hundred customers, you you always get twenty customers that are going to be happy with being provided one way of doing things. Right. Um, when you tell them this is how the design should work and make it fit, and then you have a bunch of people that will tell you my way is already the way I'm doing it, and you need to support it in your framework, otherwise I won't use your framework. And the the reality is, the more of those options you open up the more confusing your API becomes, the more yeah. complicated the support scenarios are. And at the end, the users are no, any, not, not any better. And I think there's a very big danger when you provide software to people to just accept whatever your customers tell you as all being important and trying to fetch as many as you can in a kind of... Um, it's, it's kind of populism uh, applied to software. This is exactly what, you know, c- certain frameworks end up doing, trying to provide options for everyone, yeah. and not doing any of them very well at all. And I really think that part of the design process of a framework is to drive people into a certain way of thinking. If they don't like it, let them use another framework. But trying sure. to grab market share by being everything to everyone means that you're never good at anything. Well, that's kind of where it ends up after 10 years. I think it's a more mature mindset to say, no, this isn't the one right way. There are other right ways. But if you want to go those other right ways, do it with somebody else. We do it this way. Yeah. And that's, and that's, but that's, that's a message that, you know, it's probably easier for us from the open source perspective because we all invest uh, very hard earned time and money into those projects for very little returns beyond. Uh, well, depends on who's doing it. Mm. Uh, I have my I have my reasons are non financial, uh, but we people understand more easily when you tell them no. They get a bit angry sometimes, but they understand that you have one way and you want to continue on that way. And if they don't like it, they can take another boat, and you'll be happy for them. I think with commercial vendors, it takes much more planning and vision. Mm. You know, that's the battle here. When it's open source, you can stick to a vision. When it's a paying product, there's always a business person back there saying, any customer is a good customer. Do it. Mm. 
But I don't think it's true for everything. I don't think it's true for everything. You know, when the iPhone went out, there was there was a a rule that there was only one button. And if you ask any other software vendor, everybody will tell you, no, we need to have 20 form factors with 20 different layouts of buttons. And that kind of didn't work because one company had a design uh, that was in the head of the people driving the project and that flowed across all the entities that were involved in designing that product within mm. that company. Other yeah. companies will say every single person is right, as such will try to feed it to everyone. But you don't create a successful platform that way. You create a mass market platform for which success definition is very different. Yeah. Hey, I'm switching gears quickly for a minute. Uh, what's the relationship between Open Rasta and MVC or, M- or an MVC framework? Uh, what do you mean by relationship? Well, I mean, is Open Rasta an MVC framework? Is it built on MVC? Does it work with MVC? It works side by side with MVC. So Open Rasta, when it runs on ASP.NET, uses roughly the same extension points and a lot of the same logical architecture uh, as, as MVC. So as long as you've got things configured properly, which in itself is the whole ball of pain, but as yeah. long as you configure things properly, then both can run side by side and you can run your web form side by side with your MVC side by side with your open master and that will just work out of the box. Uh, that's the only integration we have. We don't reuse any of their bits at all. Uh, for two reasons. First is some of it is, well, not anything, anything published after preview five of version one for me is suffering from a lot of design flaws that didn't make any sense to use. And secondly, and more importantly, uh, OpenRaster predates MVC by quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, so MVC didn't exist at the time. It, it kind of smells like an MVC framework. It smells like an MVC framework. It has the same kind of abstraction. I think it's um, you, you could compare it much more to Fubu MVC than you could compare it to the uh, Microsoft MVC framework mm. or, or even Monorail. Monorail and SPDON MVC are kind of the same flavor. Fubu and OpenRaster kind of have the same flavor. The design principles are much more compositional in nature. There's more components that are more abstracted and work more independently. Yeah. But after that, the, the kind of uh, high-level view is still a front controller that gets a request, returns a response, and some serialization that happens over the wire. So fundamentally, you can still build your apps roughly in the same way uh, as you would with an MVC app, uh, except, of course, that you need to think of resources. But they are, they are very close. It's um, obviously much closer to any front controller uh, MVC framework than it would be from, say, the old Webforms model. Yeah. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, Give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. Sebastian, we've talked primarily about HTTP so far with uh, OpenRasta. What's the role with HTML? It's really one of the, the founding principles of OpenRasta is that you should not have to use two different frameworks to do essentially what is the same thing. When you abstract yourself away both from the old WebForms model and to a certain extent with the MVC or the ASP.NET MVC model of abstracting everything behind controller actions, 
then you realize that you can build your HTML forms and HTML websites exactly the same way as you would build services. And that dealing with HTML is exactly like dealing with JSON, and it's exactly the same thing as dealing with XML. So OpenRust lets you basically build both uh, using exactly the same API, the same principles, the same design, right. uh, and still run out, outside of ASP.NET if you want uh, to, to do dual, dual, dual development without having a dual stack. Can you actually switch the platform you're running on at some point there, or is it significant coding changes? No, there's no coding changes. As long as you compile your code into a nice uh, open raster DLL, you can take it, run it on the ASP.NET hosting, it will work. You can run it in the HTTP lesser node. You'll have to just write your initialization code, which you'll, you will probably want to do anyway, right. because you need to uh, put it into a service, for example. And you can run it on, so we've got support for ASP.NET, we've got support for IS Core, which is kind of hosting IS in your own process, yeah. which is just for the busy people out there that want to do that. Um, well, when you want a real small footprint, ultra fast, you know, low surface attack surface area, that's not a bad approach. No, I mean it's uh, it's uh, I, I love IS Core. We can we can run a lot of a uh, lot of stuff in IS Core and in 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 process. All the all the uh, integration tests uh, of the old Open Raster stack were completely based on that. And I think I think abstracting yourself from the from the the underlying platform is also very important as we move towards uh, compositional software, which is kind of why we did all this work with Open Wrap for the last year and about a year, a bit more than a year. Uh, it's, to, it's to enable for you to write components that you can start reusing across environments and across hosting environments and have a, a stronger contract and a stronger separation between what constitutes the web server and what constitutes the web framework. Because on .NET, we don't really have that, that clear, well-defined distinction that everybody has on every other platform. And um, the only reason you would have to use ASP.NET is that your app has a dependency on ASP.NET. Yeah, or you have an investment in having deployed IIS boxes. Right. And that's what, you know, there's, there's a lot of administration that companies have invested a lot of money in to monitor big web farms. And, you know, the, the people have it. So running inside it is important, but running outside of it is as equally important to open up all those scenarios where app domains and IIS and all the configuration hell that goes with it is just too expensive for you and you want something that works just right now. Sure. It, it isn't necessary for you if you haven't taken that dependency, but you are going to have to learn how to instrument without ASP.NET then as well. That is true. That is true. But it, it depends on the kind of uh, of instrumentation you want because the, the kind of instrumentation that AES gives you is about process monitoring and it's about... So, it's, for example, the biggest thing is process monitoring. And that's a, so a couple of applications running in OpenRAS in the bank uh, I'm working at at the moment uh, or some other teams have, and they run... As a, as a corporate standard, all their services run as console applications because their investment in monitoring is being able to shut down and restart console applications remotely, and that's what frontline support has access to to uh, try to kill and restart um, servers that don't don't function properly. If you have right. the dependency on IS, it means stuck. But if you but, but yeah, you do have to rebuild this stuff yourself. But there's plenty of tooling out there for all these other scenarios where IS is not the right tool. Now you mentioned open wrap in that conversation. Uh, yeah. So I, now's the opening. Tell us about open wrap. Open wrap is um, 
a project I started um, December 2009. It takes a while. It takes me a while back. Hmm. And the, the reason was that uh, a lot of people wanted to build new stuff on OpenRaster and a lot of the code needed to be merged back and put into an MSI installer, which was the way OpenRaster 2 used to be delivered. Hmm. And it got to the point where I started thinking all these components could be developed independently and we just need to find a way to put them into a central uh, place somewhere and then pull that back down uh, using .NET semantics and a .NET code base, which is basically yep. what package managers on other platforms have been doing for a long time. So we started working on a couple of prototypes, and uh, we came up with some uh, code for the, the first uh, alpha, I suppose, of that package manager in May of last year. And uh, we've been happily building new features along. But all this was basically stemmed from how can we make OpenRaster leaner by turning it into big components without it becoming configuration health for users. That was right. really the main reason why OpenRap was created. So when I think of OpenRap, I think of NuGet, whereas I want to download or I want to include this tool or this library, and then if it has any other dependencies or whatever, give me those too. Yes. As part of the feature set is retrieving all the dependencies that you may need. Uh, I think the mistake would be to think that dependency management is just a question of pulling in DLLs. There's a lot more in terms of dependencies that you have on the system mm. uh, than just DLLs. JavaScript files, HTML content, right. inclusion of anything you need to deploy somewhere. And there's also the mistake of thinking it's only at build time, because at runtime it's also very important for composite-based applications like we do in WPF to be able to just pull in this code from all these different places yeah. and mesh them at runtime and maybe recompose them at runtime when something got updated. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's definitely something that OpenRap was built from the ground up uh, to provide. And that's why we, we have a very different way of implementing things than the NuGet guys do because they're focused on the pull-in uh, DLL to and make from an Ibernate mm. and add that to my project references. We are focusing on... How about if instead of loading DLLs, you load packages and you never had to care about what is inside the package mm. and you would never have to care again about assembly references? Yeah. Let's take away all those things that don't work and make a new way of depending on something which happens to be a package. That, that's what OpenRap is trying to do, is trying to make the assembly partitioning uh, completely outdated and hopefully something we <laughs> won't talk about in two years. That's pretty cool. I mean, hey, it's pretty ambitious, but it works. Great thinking, too. I mean, right. you come at it from the right angle. Absolutely. I want to go a little off topic here, and you sort of hinted at this, which is, I mean, it's obvious to me, Sebastian, you've done a ton of work here, all on open source projects. And you said earlier in the show that, you know, you have specific motivations for that. Do you, do you care to talk about that? Why do you do all of this? Uh, orig originally, it always starts with a niche. It always starts with something that I think, uh, and I still have a couple of itches, uh, in my pockets, but my output stream is starting to become very clogged. So I need to focus <laughs> on what I currently have to finish. But um, usually it starts with a niche, something that I think needs to be fixed. And then depending on the environment, depending on the vendor, depending on other people in the open source community, you try to see if other people would build it so you don't have to. And then when no one does, someone has to do it, so you start building it uh, because it solves a specific problem. But that's just a very pragmatic approach, uh, which is not really the whole story. I think um, 
we, li- we live in a very, very particular environment, um, a mono vendor environment in which diversity is not necessarily promoted uh, at the level that it is in other, on other platforms. And I love .NET and I love the platform, but I don't necessarily love all the things that the vendor uh, provides and ships. And so I think that um, the existence of the open source community as a healthy alternative is important not only to scratch an itch or to make things different than what the vendor does, but to ensure that the vendor can evolve and the vendor evolves a lot from what the open source community does rather than from internal inventions and also to keep them a bit honest as well. I think that also plays a part. Well, and it's just this great idea that the platform's fine. It's how what tools you want to use the way you want to use them to build your apps. Yeah, and I think I think it's uh, it's really um, it's really the collaborative aspect of it. Uh, you have a lot of uh, open source developers that do stuff, and this stuff kind of recoup and try to work together. And then you have a lot of stuff that the vendor provides that doesn't quite fit with any of the existing groups, and so you end up in this very awkward situation where sometimes Microsoft just puts their fingers in their ears going, la, 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 we don't know about other solutions. Ours is the only one that exists. Mm, right. It's a very, very, um, very different attitude than you find in certain other vendors that are much more open and outgoing and saying, you've got something cool. We've got money to make a nice designer in our IDE. Why don't we help each other? Which is sure. kind of a much more collaborative approach for things that fundamentally don't make money. You don't make a lot of money on providing Visual Studio. Yeah. Licensing cost is not what drives the business. So there's, there's, there's this kind of um, sort of unreal situation of, of Microsoft acting as uh, sometimes, depending on the team, as someone that just doesn't want to interact or if they want to interact is by saying, hey, we just rebuilt what you just did. Why don't you join us and drop all the stuff you've been building and Hey, it's going to be cool. We'll make you an MVP. Uh, you, know, <laughs> <laughs> <it's>, uh, <laughs> you know, fair enough. It's a great marketing approach, but I, I, I object to that approach from maybe an idealist point yeah. of view of thinking that um, uh, we should all try and work towards achieving great software for the people that actually need the software built. And all the people that provide tools and frameworks and all this stuff are just there to help. They're not there to be impediments, and I'm not sure that the competition is necessarily to anyone's advantage. No, it makes the it makes everybody's products better. Yeah, of course, of course they are. Um, I think I think it's the word better. It's, uh, some products are better in some circumstances. A lot of the work that we do when when you arrive in a new client and you try to understand their architecture is to tell them, well, there's no silver bullet. I know that you just bought a, a big iron with lots of licenses that promised to be the absolute silver bullets, but maybe flat files would have been just fine for your solution. Right. Uh, there, there's a diversity of choices that you can choose mm. and being able to say, well, sometimes I'm not going to tell you my product. I'm going to tell you that product over there. I'd rather be honest with clients and tell them, don't use my stuff for what you need. It's not what you need. Right. You need over there. Go and buy yourself a license. Even if I lose licensing costs, that's how good vendors get repeat business by, by being honest and not trying to be everything to everyone and always say yes. I, th- I, th- I think really it's a, it's a fundamental distinction in, in how I see software. And I suppose I'm, I'm getting more extreme in that view because due to events, I just end up having to rebuild plenty of stacks or events or um, ordering of events. I end up rebuilding a lot of stacks and then end up being re-rebuilt. And so I, I end up 
working more and more with less and less Microsoft tooling uh, just because it stands up that way rather than because I want to. But I, I think it's now become uh, a point of uh, making sure that diversity is there, making sure that uh, eventually over time the big vendor, uh, our, our big Microsoft will, you know, own up to the fact that there's a community out there and that there's a certain way to interact with the community and that you don't treat open source developers like you treat a commercial vendor that has financial interest. Mm. I, actually, even that, I'm not sure it's true. I mean, you know, it's borderline a political statement more than a, more, more than a software development one, but yeah. certainly that does drive my, my, my wish to get those products continuing and, and working. It's not just a pure pragmatic approach of a, I just have a different technical solution. Mm. It's also the, if my solution is not there, your solution will never get better and that's right. really what i believe in seb do you have any relationships with people at microsoft has anyone in any kind of uh position to do something about anything in their products looked at your stuff and said you know that's a really good idea we should uh, we should talk about this well you know it's so microsoft is a company that's very split into teams that are all very independent and work very differently from each other so there's some teams that have Great, uh, great relationships with. I mean, all the work that Glenn Block has been doing on the WCF HTTP mm. framework. I was part of the advisor from the from day one, and we had an open conversation. We continue having an open conversation about what they build and to make sure that you know Microsoft does HTTP right and it serves my purpose as well. So we we help each other as much as we can. Uh, I'm an ASP insider, but I don't really get anything out of that because there's no open channels with that team at all. Right. Uh, so that's that's uh, that's a title I could put on my slide. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it really depends, and it's a very ad hoc thing. I mean, uh, it's it's the problem is that you've got a bunch of teams, and each team interacts differently. And uh, when you communicate about these things, do you consider Microsoft to be the sum of all the teams, or do you mm-hmm. consider each team on an individual basis? So in terms of uh, community involvement and and um, Social responsibility as as uh, as the the fosterer of the ecosystem, um, Microsoft needs to be taken as a whole. And so, when some teams do the wrong thing, other teams that do the right thing get impacted at the at the branding level of the company. But the company needs to own up to that and have someone in there that understands open source that is in charge. And I don't think they have that. Mm. Yeah, it is. It I is a horrible. That, I, I actually sorry. I actually asked that question to Steve Ballmer when he was in London. Yeah. Uh, he was uh, presenting in conference here, and uh, there was a Q&A at the end. I asked him, so what's going on with open source? Do you have a strategy at the corporate level that everybody needs to follow a certain way? Or if you will, the, uh, the apply the uh, don't do evil that Google had for a while. I'm not sure they still do. Mm. But they had at a point in the past. And so do you have a strategy? And I said, no, no, we... Uh, it's an interesting question. I cannot answer you, uh, uh, but each uh, subgroup will continue being independent. So they are. Hmm. <laughs> so they are. So it depends. Some teams it works great. Some teams it doesn't work great. And right. that's kind of the, uh, the story of my life. <laughs> well, Sebastian, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. You've done some brilliant work here, and, and I think no matter who you are, if you're doing any kind of dot network, we should be paying attention to what you're doing now and in the future. I wish you continued success, sir. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.
Dotnet Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Transmit a band by the MCC Yes, I'm a, a time